0: Uh, when we when we look at uh, when we're looking at the Gospel of Mark and as we continue to go through it, we started last week looking at the first the first section. Mark, as I mentioned, is a Gospel of action. It is not a Gospel where. Uh, he's going to be like Luke and take time to give you lots of details and, and things. In fact he tends to uh, he tends to not be concerned about details and he just he just runs runs with it. When we think about our when we think about cities in our in our city or in our area or even in our country in general, we have we have stereotypes that sort of go along with with our areas. You know, if we talk about the South, you know, we, we might have I don't know, be careful. Uh, But as a a northern Yankee, we might have a different opinion of somebody from the south than they have from the north. We won't get into that. But even like from the east coast to the west coast, as you start moving... Uh, I remember growing up in the Midwest and thinking everything out east is so fast, so fast, so fast. And as you go out further, Midwest a little bit more relaxed. By the time you get to West Coast, it tends to be a little bit more chill unless you're in the in the cities themselves and they're a little bit more crazy. Even as we think about it in our area, if you were going to think about cities that were significant as opposed to insignificant, you might anybody from Ono around? You know, you sort of look at, okay, Ono, what is Ono? It's like this insignificant little place of, of nowhere where is Lebanon is the really you know hot spot or Hershey or Harrisburg, and and you have those ideas. Well, that's always been around. In fact, when we look at when we look at the the map, when we look at the idea of Israel and Jerusalem and uh, Nazareth and all these areas, there there's a perspective. When we talk about Nazareth, we have in our mind, oh, Nazareth, that's where Jesus is from. That's a really important place, but. During the times of the Bible, it wasn't really that significant of a, of a place. In fact, even as we talk about talking about the wilderness, the wilderness being a place where when we look through the Bible, it's a place of beginnings. The 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 wilderness was a place where, you know, going toward Mount Sinai and then out into the wilderness, it was the beginnings of Israel. It was the beginnings of of Moses being called. It's a place of teaching, a place of calling. It's a place where people would run to protection. They would flee because there was there were struggles. As you look through the Old Testament, they would run out into the wilderness. David would go through the the rocks of Engedi and trying to find in places that were a little bit more deserted. They they would look. To, oftentimes, it became a place that was a staging ground for victory over the power of evil. God would set people up. He would have them in this place. He would be preparing them to send them back into into harm's way or to send them back to deliver. It was a place. When we look through the wilderness, it's a place of judgment. It's often a place of disobedience. We we think back to Israel's history. But with that, it's also a place of grace. When we look at how God, though he judged, though he dealt with the disobedience, his grace still is extended in the, in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is going to come up here in Mark. And for Mark to actually take the time and give you a little bit of detail, it's important for us to, to note. He talks about Nazareth. He's going to talk in verse 7, I believe it is, uh, where he's going to, or uh, verse 9, excuse me. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth was an insignificant place. It was not uh, any place of popularity. It became a Roman garrison, and that's how it initially got its, its uh, uh, popularity with Rome, but overall an insignificant place. But with that, it possibly had some of Jesus' greatest successes in, in the area there. In fact, uh, down in... Uh, toward the end of the chapter, it's going to talk about uh, verse 28. It's going to talk about that his fame spread abroad throughout all the region and round about Galilee. In that area of Galilee, in the area of Nazareth, there was a lot of popularity. In fact, a good amount of Mark's gospel and the gospels in Jesus' ministry was located in the area of Galilee. Uh, you can look at Acts 2 or 128, not Acts, sorry, Mark 128 and 3 7 will highlight some of the fame, the popularity that he had. As opposed to what we would think when we think, oh, we think Jerusalem, the, the city of David, that's the popular place. That would be the, and, and logically, if you're thinking missiologically as, as a missionary, you're, you're going to go to maybe the city of Jerusalem because that's the city, that's the popular, but that's not where Jesus went. And Mark is going to highlight that though it's a significant city, There is faithlessness continued throughout Jerusalem. When he is in Judah, he is met continually with this idea of opposition. Opposition in the temple, opposition by the leadership, opposition by the people as a whole. And so it's interesting that as Mark is going to play some of this out in the gospel, he starts off here at the beginning when he's talking about the the way of the Lord. He highlights that Jesus, and I have the arrows in your notes, but not up there. Jesus leaves from Galilee. He's going to go down, and he's going to be baptized. He comes out of Nazareth, verse number 9, to Galilee, and out of Nazareth to Galilee, to be baptized of John, where in the Jordan, the place that often was used to separate the wilderness from the area, the land of promise. But he's there, he's going to be baptized, and then after his baptism, immediately he's going to head where? He's going to be compelled by the Spirit to go to the to the wilderness. There in the wilderness, there's going to be this dynamic where it's going to play out with his temptation, and then he's going to take back, he's going to go from there, and where does he go first? He goes back to Nazareth, uh, into Galilee, uh, excuse me, verse 14. It says, when John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So he, he takes this time to give us a little bit of the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John is going to do that. He's going to set up the stage, saying, "Here comes, here comes this one. The one that is coming has now come. He's going to be baptized. He goes out into the wilderness, and now he's going to head back to start preaching the gospel. Now, as Mark unfolds it, and we started last week talking about verse one. It says, "In the beginning was the, or, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God." So we we get to this first section, and Mark is going to start talking about the way of the Lord. And we covered with John the Baptist last week. He's preparing the way of the Lord. This is what is coming in. And now we look and say, okay, what else is Mark going to teach us about this way? That we're known as people of the way. uh, Chapter 10, verse 52, that they followed after him in the way. Uh, Acts, it talks about that they are people of the way. And so this way of the Lord that God himself has designed, he has approved, the way of the Lord, we talked last week, is the plan of God. And that's, that's verses 1 through 8. Now we start to go a little bit further, and we can see that the way of the Lord is approved by God. The way of the Lord is approved by God. Now, in verse number 9, we're going we're gonna to walk into the baptism of Jesus. But unlike the other gospel accounts, uh, especially with Matthew, Mark, mark again not going to cover a lot of details he's going to hit it he's going to cover it. it says it came to pass in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan and straightway coming out of the water he saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him and there came a voice from heaven saying thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased it really when you look at it this is one of the most anticlimactic arrivals in the gospel what what is it? You know, you're thinking Jesus, you're thinking Messiah, you're thinking King, and it says, "Hey, he came from Nazareth, then he was baptized. He came to the River Jordan." Mark Mark's not going to glitz and glamor it. He's just going to he's just going to matter-of-factly state, "Here is here is what Jesus does. He comes down. He's going to be baptized by John, in the Jordan." It's interesting, uh, and w- we've talked about this before at church here, but. Uh, it was baptized of John and straightway coming up out of the water. It's not the idea that coming up out of it is not like he was walking up on the shore, but it has the idea of being brought from underneath, that he was he was immersed. That same idea of the baptism, being brought under. He was, he was brought up and out. A really good just text to be thinking about. Again, mode of baptism, even from early on, though it's a different baptism than what we do. It's the same mode being put all the way under. Uh, and being immersed, being immersed there. So Mark, Mark though, here, he does, not, he does not focus on the why of the baptism. In fact, he, he's going to focus on the what. What happened? He doesn't look and say, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Why? He doesn't even deal with the theological battle that we have to, we have to sort of think about sometimes, and, and Matthew deals with it a little bit more. This is a baptism under repentance, but what does Jesus have to repent of? He's sinless. He doesn't have he doesn't have any sin to be repenting of. So why would Jesus actually go through with this? as opposed to just saying, I don't need that because I don't need to repent. Remember, he's identifying with the program that John is, John is proclaiming. John is making preparing the way of the Lord, telling Israel, as we talked last week, you're, you're rebelling against God. As a nation, we've been walking away. We need to repent from that. We need to turn, turn back to God and, and do that. Now, what's interesting that Mark highlights on is he talks about what happens after the baptism. He just matter-of-factly says Jesus got baptized. But then he goes into some interesting statements where he talks about straightway coming up out of the water. What happened? He saw heaven opened. Literally, the idea is torn open. The the word that's used here is is not the idea of just opening a book, but it's the word schism. It's to rip, to tear apart. He looks in fact the the only other time Mark uses this word is later on in chapter 15 verse 38 when the temp the veil in the temple is torn by God the supernatural act that is happening a miraculous thing that where it is torn and access is now being given to the the holy place through the death of Jesus Christ So here in the baptism of Jesus, something supernaturally, Christ is is seeing heaven torn open. In fact, Ezekiel 1 talks about the idea of, remember when Ezekiel says, I saw the vision, I saw heaven opened up. The word there is just simply, it's pulled back and it can be closed again. Whereas Isaiah is going to talk about... um, in uh, chapter 64, verse 1, he says, Oh, that they would rend heaven, that you would come down. The longing of the prophet to say, tear it open, and we want the access to you, God, and for God to have access to us. Who saw this? Is it everybody who was there? Is it, is it everybody who was witness to this? Notice what Mark says. Mark's, Mark's pretty specific here. He says that, um, he, lo- he looks and says, And he... It's talking about Jesus saw the heavens open. So this was not everybody who was there having privileged access to see the heavens open and seeing into heaven. It was rather Jesus seeing that. Now we have the, the beauty of inspiration and on this side being able to see and to, to hear about and to think about what those initial people did not, they did not hear. The dramatic opening of heaven often suggests and may suggest that God is accessible to an extent that was not previously known. Now there is this beginning. The beginning, the baptism of of Christ is so important to the early church and to us. It was that inaugural aspect of Jesus's ministry, his public... Uh, coming out, if you would, to say, I'm coming into ministry. It's that inauguration. And they're looking and saying, this is this important. But he sees something even more than just a ritual of baptism. Christ is now seeing that, hey, there, there is new access that is beginning, the ability to be able to enter into this uh, relationship with heaven. David Garland wrote this. He said, what is open may be closed, but what is ripped cannot be easily returned to its former state. And there's something beautiful that happens in that that moment when Christ is now starting this process, starting this ministry, and the movement toward, eventually, the cross, is that he is ripping away and allowing this new access to be gained through Jesus Christ. So the way of the Lord, we see that it is approved by God. He sees the heavens open, then the Spirit descending like a dove. Notice, notice that it's not saying as a dove. We get this this perspective that oh, the spirit comes in the shape of a dove. He's just using he's using um, a literary dynamic that's just saying the, the form was sort of like this. He's not saying that the Holy Spirit takes the shape of a dove, but he says he comes down as a dove, and then he hears the voice from heaven. So his voice from heaven is going to come, and is again, I believe that it's probably to Jesus directly. Uh, and hearing that not everybody there uh, he what is what does Jesus say he says you and the the wording that he uses it's a it's it's directly it's not you all or it's directly you personally uh, are my beloved son so the gospel open with the proclamation i love this that he opens with mark opens up with number verse 1 he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of god he makes that statement but now we get to the baptism of Jesus And who is going to put his divine stamp on that? It's God the Father. He's going to look and say, this is my son and it's the one whom I am I am well pleased but the father affirms that Jesus Christ is the son of God it's not just us taking mark's word at it this is god the father looking and saying he is he is that one so this voice from heaven cries out affirms the deity of Jesus Christ and he says i am well pleased it's not just it's not god simply looking and saying hey i'm really proud of you son you're doing a good job you're swell but he's looking and saying i I look and I am signifying, it signifies God's pleasure and that Jesus was this agent of special mission. He understood. Jesus is identifying with the program, with the the mission that he has to come to seek and to save that which is lost, to be a servant to others. And he's identifying with that and he's going forward and God the Father is pleased with his son's path that he he is heading down toward. So his voice from heaven then cries out. It's not simply, though, a mission in which Jesus speaks and then acts on behalf of God. He's not, he's not just an ambassador. We are ambassadors. We speak on behalf of God. We take the mission of sharing the gospel, but we are not God. We are ambassadors for God. Jesus Christ, different story. He is taking that same mission of sharing the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, but he is doing it as God himself. He is, he is God. These supernatural occurrences that are happening, the heavens being opened, the, the voice coming forward, all of this happening around, around Christ's baptism, they reveal that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's a divine decree. To be able to look and to say, how do I know that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, I can rest in the words of God the Father who says, this is Jesus Christ. I don't have to, I don't have to waffle on that. I don't have to wonder. I can take God at his word in those moments. So Christ's baptism launches Christ on the servant road. He's beginning this pathway. He's heading down this idea. Again, Mark is going to be about service, about action, about his ministry to others. So on the servant road, ultimately leading to death on the cross, which we know flows with all of scripture. We know he humbly submits Philippians to to obedience and even to death on the cross his pathway is started here, and he's going on this, this way. So the, the way of the Lord, it is approved by God. And it's something that the, God the Father puts a stamp on and says, Jesus Christ is headed this way, and it's a good thing, and what he's doing is, is profitable. Some thoughts to, to consider as I was going through. Christ is God's way. Now, I'm preaching to the choir here. Most of you are like, yes, we know that. Christ is God's way. We would be foolish not to follow him and to follow his ways, and to continually look and say, if we are people of the way, not just saying, okay, I've gotten saved, but we have a responsibility to be following the path that Christ has established, one of servitude, one of obedience, one of submission to the Father. Just as Christ was doing, we have that responsibility to follow and to proclaim the message that Jesus Christ himself was proclaiming. Christ is God as I mentioned. We cannot equivocate. If someone doubts, if someone denies, I'm, I, I hold personally pretty strongly, even if I'm dealing with somebody who's an atheist, and he looks at me and says, oh, well, let's suppose that Jesus Christ isn't really God. Sorry, man, I can't do that. Uh, that's, that's my presupposition. I'm, there is a God. He has spoken. Jesus Christ is God. We cannot equivocate. We can't waffle on that. We look and say, this is who Jesus Christ is. He is Deity. He is the divine nature. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, so we don't we don't change on that. Like Christ, we need to submit to being God's servant, God's agent, and humble servitude was Christ's goal. Is it ours? What's interesting is that that phrase "my son." Um, there's there's a couple different options that people talk about. Like why why did why did God the Father use the phrase "my son"? He, um, he, it refers back, a lot of people believe, commentators believe it refers back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is a messianic psalm, where it's a declaration of Christ being on the throne, the Messiah coming, and the phrase, my son, is used there, which seems to make sense. But what's interesting about that, and Mark's going to bring it out more later on, especially in chapter 9, He's, he says, "If you think the Davidic King, if you think the one who's going to come with power and authority and the Messiah, like the, they would have been thinking, they were looking for someone to come and to overthrow that Roman government, to be that power, to be that strength. He comes in, and Christ looks and says, "Don't, don't tell anybody. Just just keep it quiet. And just keep it under wraps. And we'll talk about it in a few weeks, it's called the Mark in Secret." Where multiple times Mark is going to look at least five times, it's going to say, don't, don't go tell anybody, which is completely contrary to what we think because we're thinking we need to go tell, we need to go tell. But there's reasons why, why that happens. What's interesting to me is the, the triumphant king, my son, the, the one who should be coming in, he comes with this attitude of, It's not about me. He comes in with this humble servant's attitude and says, I'm coming to serve, not to be ministered unto as a king would want to be, but rather to minister unto others. So he takes that attitude of humble servitude to look and to say, is that our goal with fellow believers? Do we come here and say, what are you going to give to me? Or do we look and say, what can we give to God? What can we give to others? Having that heart attitude that, that Christ had. So the way of the Lord is, is God's plan. It was approved by God, but then it's going to be attacked by Satan. Mark just is going to keep going. Boom, 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 boom. The next thing that happens, it's going to be attacked by Satan. So immediately, verse 12, and again, Mark using that 40, 41, 42 times in the book, that word immediately, it's going to happen quickly. It says, immediately, the Spirit drives or compels or urges him, meaning Christ, into the wilderness, and we, we look at this idea of what's going to happen. What's going to happen is conflict. As you think through, whether it's the book of Mark or just the Gospels in general, you, who, who does Jesus have conflict with? Who are some people? Satan. Satan. Okay, yes, good. Got number one. Who else? The Pharisees, the religious leaders. Absolutely, there's conflict there with the religious leaders. Who else, is, who else does he have conflict with? The demons the demons there's conflict with the demons is there any other person or entity that he has conflict with or it seems to rise up and all of a sudden something's rising up and he's going to look with his voice and say stop hush quiet be still nature we're nature and you're going to see it pitted against it and christ comes in there's another group he has he has conflicts with at times his what his disciples so, so you have all these individuals that, that there's conflict. Conflict is going to be inevitable, and we know that it's present in our, in our lives. Now, in this passage here, there are going to be two individuals that are going to face conflict. And you, you did a really good job with the this, this Sunday school answer the first time. You said Satan right away. So this time, who's the first person that's going to have conflict? Jesus. Okay, Jesus. Jesus is going to have conflict. Who's the other person that's going to face conflict? it's going to be John. John is going to face, it's just going to be a brief statement. There's going to be one little thing that happens to John, but there's going to be conflict that arises in John's life. So now there's, there's this conflict. The way of the Lord is now going to be attacked. And, and what happens here is Mark is concerned not with the test itself. Again, he does the same thing here with the temptation of Christ that he does with the baptism of Christ. We, we expect the long, give us it all, tell us everything. Mark is not concerned with that. He's concerned with the results. What happened? What is the, what is the end? How did, it, how did it finish up? Notice, notice what he says. And he was there in the wilderness, 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Now after that, John was put in prison. There it is. And we're looking at Matthew, we're thinking Matthew right away. Oh, he's going, how's he going to attack Satan? When Satan attacks him, he's going to attack him with the word of God. He's going to use the word of God multiple times. Mark doesn't deal with that. Now, we know from our theology and Bible study, that's how Matthew deals with it. That's how Luke's going to talk about some of it. But here, we're going to look and say, Mark just looks and says, it happened. He was tested, he triumphed. He just boom, boom. And, and think about who he's writing to. He's writing to the Romans. They want to see action. They want to see authority. They want to see power. They want to see the conqueror. They want to see the one. He just, yeah, he was tempted. He had a, he had a struggle. He won. Now, there's multiple views. Uh, he views this as one epic clash. This is just one battle. We, we know that Matthew, Luke, they deal with it in multiple battles. Like there was the temptation on the pinnacle. There was a the temptation for the bread. He just looks and says, there was, there was a testing that occurred. And in the testing, Christ passed the test. What's interesting is he brings out, Mark brings out something that the other Gospels don't. He brings out that he was with wild beasts, highlighting the danger, the desolation of the area that, in, the, in that wilderness area. W- what it all entails, we don't, we don't know everything on that. We just know that this was another conflict that arose with the wilderness. There's uh, some some commentators, and there there may be a good good dynamic here. Writing to the Roman Christians who are under persecution, and if you remember, even with when Nero's in charge, and potentially maybe during that time period here being written. Uh, Tacitus, who's one of the Roman historians, actually talks about that Nero would dress them up, dress the Christians up in hides of the wild beasts, put them in the arena for the dogs to tear at them and to face that conflict. So is there even a potential here, though, I, I, whether Mark had that in mind when he wrote it, we're not sure. Is there the potential to look and say encouraging to the Roman Christians, Christ even faced the, ro- the wild beasts? And through the power and the strength of God, he was able to overcome. You can, you can endure testing. You can endure some of that. Could be, and on the flip side, you've got always the, the other dynamic where you're looking and saying, yeah, but why did those ones get fed to the beasts, And why did they? And we, at that point, we give it to the providence and the sovereignty of God and looking and saying, he, he understands that. I don't have an answer on all of those, all of those dynamics. But he does look and say there is this, this aspect with the wild beasts. Another, another interesting part was uh, he talks about that the angels ministered unto him. Now, Matthew talks about that as well. Chapter 4, verse 11, Matthew's going to talk about that after the testing is done, Satan leaves and the angels come and minister unto Jesus. Interestingly, Mark says, the, the way that Mark uses the Greek word here is that the angels are continually ministering to him seems like through that entire testing. That doesn't mean they were feeding him because we know with Matthew at the beginning, he's fasting for those 40 days. So so he, the angels are though ministering, giving comfort, giving strength through that time. In what ways? We don't totally know, but we, the interesting word there is the, the ministering word is they, they were deaconing to him. It's diakonos. It's that that serving, the waiting of tables, the the getting down and and getting their hands dirty to help, to minister, to be be that servant. And then after Jesus, he just gives, Mark gives this quick little thing. It says, and John was handed over to prison. Now, it doesn't, if, if most of you with your King James, it says John was put into prison or put in prison. But the word that's used is really interesting. He uses the word that says that he was handed over. And this this word is used multiple other times in the gospel. It's used in 9.31, 10.33, and then eight different times in chapters 14 through 15, dealing with Jesus Christ being handed over, being uh, given to, walked into the hands of the the Pharisees and the religious leaders uh, for that idea of being turned over into death. And then it's used uh, in 13, 9, 11, and 12, talking about that the believers who are being betrayed or being persecuted, they would be handed over. Uh, John here is not just a forerunner of, uh, a forerunner of just Jesus' message. He's a forerunner of Jesus' fate. He's handed over to them, just like Jesus one day will be handed over uh, to them. So he, a little foreshadowing there. But the idea of being handed over it combines not only the adversity, the struggle, the conflict that these men faced, uh, and, and to which we as the faithful are subjected, but it also, that God providentially operate, is operating through those circumstances. They handed over, there's a passive aspect to which somebody was in control, somebody was well aware of the situation that was happening, and John was allowed to be handed over, so as John's public ministry was put out to pasture, the next one, the the one who he is forerunning for, is able to come now to the forefront. Is able to look and to say, okay, now he is the one who's going to, to be proclaiming. Thoughts to consider, things to think about. Be concerned with how you go through the test. Mark was not concerned about all the facts. He was concerned about what was the result of the test. Concerned with how you go through the test, how you handle the test. Now, we can go to other passages and say, how do we handle tests and adversity? James and and Matthew, we can look at some of those. But we have that responsibility of saying, how do we go through the test? Do we handle it correctly? It's not just about getting the results we want, though we're always going through hoping that our result turns out. But in the process of getting to that point, how do you handle the test? How do you handle the struggle that you're facing? Do you do it with dignity, with honor, with respect? Do you do it in a way that is obedient to God's principles and God's commands? We have that that responsibility. Conflict inevitably results from any attempt to establish the kingdom of God. You're out, you're going to start sharing the gospel. There's going to be conflict. Why? Because it is more than just me telling you what I think you should know. If I'm going to share the gospel, this is a spiritual battle now. Because it's not just Leon needs to know about Jesus. It's no, his soul hangs in the balance. I need to share the gospel. And if I don't share the gospel with him or when I do share the gospel, we are entering into a spiritual battle. So we have this aspect where we need to understand when we are going about sharing and attempting to establish the kingdom of God in the hearts and lives of other people, There is going to be conflict. We need to be prepared for that. We need to be prepared to handle it uh, correctly. The power of God appears in the desert. This was interesting to me. You think about the wilderness. Christ is in the wilderness. He's a person who comes from a nobody nowhere place of Nazareth. You would look and say he's probably by the time the 40 days are up, he's weak. And you would look and say, really? Is that the type of person that God is going to strengthen? And yet he does. The angels minister to them, to him. You may feel insignificant. You may feel like God doesn't care. You may feel like nobody knows that you exist. But we have have to remember that God does know. And God is well aware of us. And we need to take hope in that. And when passing through the desert or facing the beasts, take comfort by having eyes to see that Christ has already been there. And we follow his example as we, as we go through in the way he leads. So the way of the Lord, as you walk through this, this first part of Mark, it's God's plan. It's approved by him. It's attacked by Satan. And Satan and, and God uses that, that attack to, to um, explode the word of God. And often we see that as persecution arises, as attacks come, the gospel is advanced. And the last two verses here, 14 and 15, it talks about that now John's put in prison, but Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So Jesus is now going to take up this preaching mantle. The, the same preaching mantle that, that John had. You notice up in verse 4, John did baptize in the wilderness and he's preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now he's going to use the same word here, verse 14, that Jesus is going and preaching the gospel. So now you have the way of the Lord is going to be advanced by the preaching of Jesus Christ. Even though John's in prison, it's going to go forward. And that's, to me, that's That's encouraging that even if somebody like John, who at that time was the prophet, he was the superstar, the gospel's bigger than any one person. And it's bigger, it's bigger than you or I. And no matter what, the gospel needs to continue to go forward. This was not just a revival service, though. Don't get the idea that that Jesus was just walking around and you know trying to get people and just say hey you know live your life better pull pull yourself up do some good things love others and it's good Christ was going around preaching the gospel he was announcing an event that had happened the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of god is at hand what was he saying god has come the heavens have been ripped open there is something special something unique that is happening here and we get to be we get to be a part of it the gospel message is talked about. The message is uh, the message of and about Jesus. When we talk about the gospel, it's not simply uh, just, just simply the teaching when we're talking about it here of Jesus Christ. It's the full encapsulation of who Jesus was, his entire life, all of his teachings, all being wrapped up. Now, he's gonna, he's gonna say it very succinctly, but as we have the, the beauty of hindsight, We can look and say the gospel of Jesus is about the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To take any one of those parts out doesn't justice to the gospel. The gospel is is fully encapsulating who Jesus was and it's fully encapsulating his teachings and what he is saying in his teachings. That's why it's so vitally important for you and I as believers not just to simply say, I've got my get out of hell card free, you know, get out of hell free card. But we have to look and say, wait, the gospel is more than just me being saved. The gospel is about the impact of Christ and the impact of Christ's teachings in my life. And how does that permeate and penetrate into my life? And then is how is it fleshed out as we go day by day, hour by hour? So he, he looks and he says, the time is fulfilled. And you keep looking at Christ's simple message here. He says, what was he saying? He says, the time is fulfilled. It's, it's divine time here. The the word that's used, Luke Luke will talk about chronology. Remember when Luke talks about Christ's coming, he's like in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. When you know, and he goes on, he gives you the specific. You can almost bring it down to the date. That's Luke. Mark just uh, Mark is going to look and say. In the fulfilled time, in the opportune moment, when everything has been prepared, Israel has has come through. John has prepared the way. It is the time. It has this divine stamp upon it that the time is fulfilled for Jesus Christ to come to this earth. And he says, the kingdom of God is here. So Christ is here in the flesh. It is now entered. Heaven, just like Isaiah was hoping that it would be rent and we would have this relationship, now we have that. So he, he highlights that, and then he says, he wraps it up with repent and believe. He says, the kingdom of heaven has come. That prompts a necessary response when we understand and we look at the gospel of Christ and we understand who he is and what he has done, it compels us to have to have a response. So he looks and he says, repent you and believe the gospel. So he brings out, brings out both, these, both the, the aspects here. The repentance, the turning from sin, the metanoia, the change in the mind. To look and say the direction I was headed is wrong. I need to turn and go the other way. And not just turn and say, okay, these, because we have people in our society, they'll look and say, yeah, what I'm doing isn't good. I need to stop doing that. And I need to do better for myself. But it's, it's a turning from this sin, turning toward this and believing, putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his way as the only way to, to salvation, and so Christ is going to simply highlight that, though there's nothing simple about it. What's interesting about these two words is they are, they are, they're present active indicatives for those of you who love the Greek stuff. But simply it means this. They're to be a continual action in our lives. Christ was not looking and saying, just get saved. He's saying the habitual action of a believer who is following Christ and following the way is to be in a continual Active state of repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. When I'm doing wrong, I am repenting and I am trusting that Christ's way is the way. It is the best way. It may not be something I like, but I'm going to believe and trust in Christ's way. I'm going to repent, I'm going to believe. That is to permeate every single dynamic of our lives. Anything we do, anything we say, any actions that come about, when necessary, we need to repent and we need to continually be believing in Christ's ways. In Christ's action and Christ, Christ's attitude. He he sums it, he sums it up. The God's divine way, when we look at the, the first part here of Mark, and, and then you know he's gonna lay the groundwork here and then he's gonna just explode with activity after activity after activity. But he's looking and saying, God's divine way and blessing is present in Jesus Christ. He is the approved way. Though it's been attacked, it is what God has. And it is our human obligation when we come face-to-face with Christ to repent and to believe. So as we look at our lives, we, we look at it this week, we look at all these different dynamics. Maybe you're in the midst of attacks. Maybe you're in the midst of sharing the gospel. Maybe you're dealing with sin personally. All those areas we need to be trusting in God and, if necessary, repenting from our sins and following after the way, because the way is approved by God. It is his plan for us, and we need to go forward with it. So Lord, I pray that you would help us today and this week to be individuals who are trusting in you, who are following you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us when necessary to repent of our sins, help us to believe in you. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the boldness to proclaim your way and your truth. In your name we pray. Amen.